You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. Amen. Well, you can open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 as we uh, continue uh, in the last part of Ephesians where Paul talks about the armor of God. You may be wondering, <laughs> what does the armor have God have to do uh, with Christmas? Well, the last two Sundays, I have said this, Satan will not have peace with you if you have peace with God. Satan will not have peace with you if you have peace with God. A central theme of Christmas is peace on earth and goodwill towards men. The incarnation of Jesus shows us that the war for peace and goodwill has already been won. Jesus' birth shows us that God is with us. Jesus' life shows us that God is perfect. Jesus' death shows us the depth of God's love for us. Jesus' resurrection shows us the fullness of God's authority. And Jesus' return shows us that he is coming to rescue us. But there is the now and the not yet. The reality of this truth is now and there is the fact that it is not fully realized or experienced yet. We are ready and waiting. I don't want to get into this too much, but the reason why God hasn't put an end to it now is to bring believers into his kingdom. So as God and sinners are being reconciled, we wait to fully join in the triumph of the skies. If I were to summarize the purpose of the scriptures, I would say it is to help sinners be ready for Christ's return and to help the righteous live in that as we are waiting on his return. That has been the focus of Paul's encouragement in Ephesians. The first word of the verses that we are looking at this Christmas season is finally. So Paul, who has written about God adopting us into his family, and how with that there is the promise of an inheritance and the riches of Christ, Paul tells us that that is 100% by faith in his grace, not our works. And he tells us that this is available to the Gentiles. And he encourages the church to walk in unity because of this, in the spirit, in love, and that this should affect all of our relationships. And then he says, lastly, considering all of this, be strong in the Lord and who he is. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In this battle, our strength is in the Lord. And he instructs us in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Putting on the whole armor of God is about recognizing that we are in a spiritual battle and that we need to be intentionally equipped Paul says, with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to stand against the schemes of the devil. And that brings us to the focus of our time together today, which Paul emphasizes in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6. In saying, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul uses the biological terms of flesh and blood to emphasize that our battle is against what can't be seen. Now, I have to admit this is, that this absolutely amazes me. I'm not surprised to hear Paul say that we wrestle with evil, demonic, supernatural powers. But Paul, you've been stoned, beaten, imprisoned, and run out of town. Your flesh has been bruised and your blood has been shed. And that has hindered your ministry again and again. What do you mean that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood? Paul has been brought to the point of death and is saying, it's just a flesh wound like the Black Knight on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Paul is not denying the reality of the physical aspects of our struggle. He is, however, explaining that the bigger war, the one that we should most be concerned with, is the one that is unseen. It's the spiritual battle. John Stott said that beneath the service, an unseen battle is raging. A spiritual battle that is bigger than any physical battle is taking place. A spiritual battle that is bigger than any physical battle is taking place. I know with the physical struggles we go through, with the conflict that we might see between people, between nations, that is hard for us to embrace. But the reality is that a spiritual battle that is bigger than any physical battle is taking place. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces. Now, let's quickly define those words. Rulers is actually the word beginning. And when it's used in reference to a position, it refers to a ruler. Authorities means just that, someone or someones who have authority. This could be an earthly or spiritual authority. Cosmic powers, a phrase that's only used here in the New Testament, refers to spiritual powers when used elsewhere in Greek literature. Over this present darkness qualifies that Paul is writing of the devils and demons who God has given permission to rule over this present darkness. This is unique to Ephesians in the New Testament and is found in Greek writings related to gods. And lastly, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places is a somewhat complex phrase that means that which is over the immorality and wickedness that takes place. I don't think Paul is listing four or five separate specific types of rulers, but he's trying to explain the exhaustiveness of the angles of our war. It includes the evil principalities that have always existed. It involves the earthly and heavenly rulers who are in submission to this evil principle. It is against the powers that be ruling over this world, and it is against the powers that are propagating immorality in any given culture. Be sure that Paul is not writing here to stimulate our curiosity about the no no notion of satanic involvement. While it has its place, the main takeaway from hearing this text is not to seek to become an expert on devils and demons. In his book, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis said that when it comes to devils and demons, there are two equally wrong and equally damaging errors. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to have an unhealthy interest in them. When we read any place in Scripture, the primary takeaway is who wins the battle and what he has called us to do with that authority. Not the specifics of when and where 
and how he wins. So we ought not to go out and find every documentary on evil or every book that claims to be Christian dealing with devils and demons to determine the common threads and numerical sequences that we ought to be afraid of. Granted, some of you think all numerical sequences of math is evil. So it's probably overkill that we won't have a floor number 13 or we get, we get scared when our lunch receipt says it's $6.66. Some of y'all out of shake. In this economy, I'm just paying for it and saying, get behind me, Satan. Granted, granted I haven't had a lunch that only costs six sixty six since 2020. But anyway, we shouldn't have an unhealthy interest in the demonic. But with that, let's be sure that we do not deny or ignore their existence. Paul is writing to make us clearly aware of the hostility that we face. Peter O'Brien said that in reality, this war is unseen and cosmic. It's invisible and it's everywhere. It's like a pandemic in a way, invisible and disrupting everything in our world. Well, this type of warfare is the context of our entire Christian life as a profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions. And we can see the effects of the demonic in our world. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it's not a danger. We did not understand germs and bacteria existed until the late 1800s. But societies felt the effects of germs and bacteria, even though we could not see them at that point. You may not even be religious at all, but most of us can see that things go on in this world that are beyond biological abnormalities. There is real evil. We have learned a lot about mental health in the last few decades, and I am grateful for how we are understanding the effects of trauma, how to connect with people better, and how some struggles will just remain on earth. But I have noticed that there is a shift to explain or excuse every behavior with such a diagnosis. And we are shying away from calling evil, evil. As we grow in understanding the psychological, we cannot deny or ignore the spiritual. As we grow in understanding the psychological, we cannot deny or ignore the spiritual. Evil was in the face of the Ephesians. Remember where they are. The temple of Artemis is there. Whenever Acts chapter 19 tells us that they recognize that Paul was a Jew, they cried out for two hours saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The occult had a strong presence in Ephesus. The whole place was dominated by satanic occult activity and expressions of that were everywhere to be seen. It was an industry. People were employed directly or indirectly because of the temple of Artemis. There were hotels that existed, restaurants that existed because of the number of people that would travel there. There were booths with people selling. I went to the temple and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. They didn't have coffee yet. And so they had mugs that said, all I need in the morning is Artemis and my tea. And so when Paul is making converts there, it gets everybody upset because he destroys or disrupts the economy because it was built around the worship of Artemis. Now, Greek Hellenistic religions referred to gods who controlled parts of the universe. But the Jews 
believed that they were just evil spirits. They weren't gods. They were lesser. And Paul's using that terminology to describe them as rulers of darkness and to indicate that they do have power, influence, and schemes. He doesn't want us to take a philosophical approach to evil. He says we wrestle against these powers. This word wrestle is only used here in the New Testament. In Greek writing, it was typically used to describe the sport of wrestling, but could also be used to describe a general conflict. Now, while modern Greco-Roman wrestling likely differs from the sport of the days of Paul, it was in that day two people grappling closely together, trying to get the other into submission. That's the imagery that Paul uses to help us understand the intense, close nature of the spiritual struggle that we are in. There is real temptation to get you to give into your desires for immediate pleasure and sacrifice important priorities. Satan and his team want to get you to doubt what God can do through you if you sacrifice for him and cause you to trust in the security of the things the world says you can give yourself. Satan wants you to become overconfident and in that confidence, use his army to take you down. Now, I need to emphasize here that anything that takes us from living our lives for the will of God and the advancement of his glory and the gospel advancing in the lives of others is losing the battle to Satan. So well, there are those that might say of your dreams and your desires, you need to climb that mountain for God and you exert a lot of energy climbing that mountain to give yourself the life you want and shake the haters off. A lot of times you will find when you get on that mountain, that you haven't won. And Satan has just drugged you onto the wrong mountain. Martin Luther once said, the, de the devil's nature shows itself therein. If he cannot ruin people by wronging and persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. The devil's nature shows itself therein. If he cannot ruin people by wronging and persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. And Satan has religion in mind, as a tool, morality in mind, success in mind, to make you feel like you are justified and take your eyes off of the need for the gospel, to take our eyes off of our need for Christ and therefore not live for the goal. There is a real spiritual battle to get you and I to not live for Christ with all kinds of tactics. And this is why we put on the armor of God. But there is something very important to be observed from this passage. All our spiritual armor is meant to be paired with the tactic of prayer. All our spiritual armor is meant to be paired with the tactic of prayer. Look at verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is not a new isolated sentence. It is connected with the armor of God that Paul has told us to put on in verses 11 through 17. 
Nuclear wars cannot be won with rifles. Likewise, the satanic war cannot be won with our human effort. We put on the armor of God and we call upon the power of God. And so the call from this passage to us is to call on God. And there are four instructions given here on prayer. Four instructions on prayer. Look at verse 18. Paul says, praying at all times. The first instruction is to pray at all times. We need to take every opportunity we have to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. We ought to continually be in a state of prayer. This is a theme and thread of our life, and we need to realize the power of prayer, the power of calling upon God. Whenever the disciples are sent out by Jesus to share the gospel, to perform healing and um, minister to the people, they encounter someone who they can't get anywhere with him. And so Jesus comes, and here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He says it takes prayer for some things to happen. And as God's people, we have that kind of power at our disposal. Yes, we work, but we recognize the power of prayer. The Bible is clear. The action corresponds with faith. Faith without works is dead. But without God's help, our works are dead. And the text tells us pray at all times in the Spirit. Because of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has been promised to us, given to us as believers. We have the power of God dwelling in us because of the work of Christ. A connection with God the Father and His power and His authority. And we ought to recognize that and lean into that at all times. But we underestimate the power of prayer. We deprioritize prayer. People have long made the excuse, we're too busy. There's too much going on in our lives to really pray like that. Our problem is not a lack of time. It is that we are too interested in work, entertainment, and leisure to rest in the power of God through prayer. And technology has proven this. John Piper once said, one of the great uses of social media will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not because of a lack of time. It is clear that we have time to do what is important to us. And our phones have stolen from us the gaps of life we could use to pray. Instead of praying without ceasing, we scroll without ceasing. We are a culture that instead of praying without ceasing, we scroll without ceasing. There's competition, a battle for the gaps of time in our life and our phones and the internet and social media too often went out over prayer. We need for our attention to be reset on the spiritual forces in this world. Satan is alive and active for now. And we see the damage he is doing if we open our eyes. 
Tony Rinke said, so we take this by faith, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That cosmic war includes what happens on our screens. Social media is war. Our worst smartphone habits are a result of letting down our guard. The insatiable appetite for self-glory that drives so much of our time online is a lie from Satan, a sham. It won't satisfy us. Social media addiction simply exposes the depth of our needy souls for God. But it's a place where we can redeem for eternal purposes too. A place where we can stand for Christ. Satan's aim is that nobody be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And one of his key strategies is to start battles in the world which draw our attention away from the real battle for the salvation of the lost and the perseverance of the saints. He knows the real battle, as Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. And we need to wake up and pray at all times. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, with all prayer and supplication. By this, he means to pray in all ways. Pray in all ways. When he says supplication, that's an urgent plea. It brings up the image of someone running to tell the king that danger is coming, a threat to his kingdom is coming. Someone running to an authority and saying, I need your resources in order to live or in order to help people live. And this is something we should be doing in all kinds of ways. What should we be praying for? Everything. The direction of every aspect of our life. Protection in all aspects of our life. All of the relationships that we are in our lives. Provision in all ways in our life. That we would receive and hear correction and be corrected in our lives. And we ought to be praying because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. It does not come and go. We ought to be praying in the Spirit in many ways. We ought to listen to the Spirit and stop right there with those nudges and pray for that person or pray for that situation. When things are constantly on our mind and we can't sleep or we can't stop thinking about them, maybe we ought to pray for those things. It is the first thing we should do in the morning. It is the first thing we should do when we're starting something new. It is what we should finish our day with and what we should finish our task with. When we are uncertain, we should pray. When we are certain, we should pray. We should pray by ourselves. We should pray with our family. We should pray with our friends. We should pray with our church. We should pray with our groups. We should pray. We should pray reverently, passionately, silently, loudly, prostrate on our knees, standing up. Every way we ought to be people who pray. Verse 18 says, keep alert with all perseverance. So we also ought to pray with all perseverance. When you think of the word perseverance, think of working out. And I do work out. I just also eat a lot of pizza. Uh, you're working out and you're, you're done. It's the last set. It's those final reps and you are finishing. Think about if you've ever competed in something athletically and it is the end. It is the fourth quarter and you are tired and you know you cannot give up. Paul has that in mind when he says this. He's thinking about the onslaught of spiritual attack that comes when we are weakened. Jesus warned us that this would be the case. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34 through 36, Jesus says this, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. 
but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We need to pray with all perseverance in these moments where we feel like we've prayed enough, we feel like we've made it. This is when we ought to pray, when we ought to be alert to the spiritual battle that is going on. I get the opportunity to have conversations with our student minister, Alec, often and talk about how God's leading him. And at this point in his life, he feels like, hey, being a student minister is something I might do all of my life. Being a student minister was something I felt like two years was a lifetime for. And I knew that wasn't what God had called me to do. And one of my least favorite things about being a student minister were lock-ins. If you've ever experienced a lock-in, uh, as a student, they are God's great joy. As an adult volunteer, they're hell on earth in many ways. And, and it's at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. when all your adults are falling asleep and some of your adult volunteers are asleep that you got to be doing the patrol of all the area because that's when the bad things happen at a youth lock-in. And so I think about that when I think about our life and the battle that we are in. And it's when we're getting tired, we felt like we're on the home stretch when Satan attacks to cause us to lose our purity. It's when we think we're turning the corner in our marriage that Satan says, okay, now I've got them right where I want them. It's when we think we've trained our children and protected our children when Satan says, okay, they're in college now. It's time to attack. It's whenever we feel like we've finished the course and we're beginning to coast towards the finish line that Satan says, I'm going to ruin their credibility. James chapter one says, when we're going through trials, we must let perseverance finish its work in us so that we may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. It is in that moment when we are on the home stretch that we ought to continue calling upon the power of God in prayer. Pray with all perseverance. And lastly, here in verse 19, he says, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for all people. Pray for all people. As Christians, we talk a lot about praying for the lost, and that's fine. But truthfully, the Bible actually speaks to that very little. The emphasis of Scripture is to pray for the saints, to be faithful and to reach those who are without Christ. We have bought into a lie that many churches have adopted that believe the church, the Sunday morning gathering, is for the lost. That's not the words of Jesus. The purpose of us meeting together as the church is to stir one another towards love and good works. What happens here should motivate us to bring heaven to our community by the proclamation and living the name of Jesus. We need to pray for each other in such a way. Notice that Paul includes himself here at verse 19. He says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, I need your prayer. There are no spiritual superheroes in God's kingdom. The power in which Paul relied is the same power in which we rely. That's the Holy Spirit. Now notice what Paul is asking for prayer for. In verse 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then in verse 20 again says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, 
that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's prayer is that the gospel would go forth through him. He's not asking for prayer for trivial things. I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian John Christ, but he has a bit. and He says, I'm not praying for that. And I'll tell you honestly, as a pastor, sometimes I feel every word of which he says. Hey, on the prayer list is this vacation. Here's the elaborate details about this vacation that they're taking on that we're all jealous of. Pray for them. I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm in the right place to actually pray about that. Hey, we just pray for our sports team that we would win. You mean the one you've missed church every three weeks because of? I just don't know if I'm going to pray for that. And, you know, hey, pray. Hey, we got a lot of money, but we're trying to haggle with this, you know, person who's barely making ends meet, who's going to work on my house. Pray that they just give us a good deal. And I'm like, I think I might be praying that they rip you off, actually, because they need to feed their family. I pray for all the things you asked me to pray for, okay, just so you know. But the truth is, we pray for anything so that the gospel would go forth. We pray for health, not so that someone would be able to live on this fallen world for longer, but so that someone would have health so they can serve Jesus for longer and bring hope to this fallen world. Everything we're praying for is so that. And I just would ask you to examine your heart Are you praying for the kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you praying for a more comfortable life? Because we need our hearts in tune with Jesus Christ. Are you basically praying that God would keep us distracted when you pray together? Or are you praying about the spiritual battle? Paul says, I'm attacking darkness with the gospel. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm in chains right now. And he's still writing letters. (laughs) He wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon in chains. He is not letting the physical battle distract him from the bigger battle. Tony Meredith says that Paul says that being bound to one location does not stop prayer and it does not stop preaching. It does not stop the gospel advance and light of the spiritual war. Last thing I'll say is if we recognize the importance of the spiritual battle, the aim of all prayer will be the advancement of the gospel. If we recognize the importance of the spiritual battle, the aim of all prayer will be the advancement of the gospel And may I just plead with you, church, that when we pray together in our small groups, in our life groups, wherever it may be, we still pray for the physical struggles, illness, but will someone just say, we're not going to have prayer time without praying that God's spirit will stir this group of people to be about the more important battle. Will you join me in making that a priority? Because the gospel is the answer to this battle. It is the power of God for salvation that reconciles sinners to God, and we ought to be boldly proclaiming it. And standing in the gospel is the defensive. When Satan throws all of his attacks at us to remember, it is not my work, it is the work of Christ that has made me his, and I am not going to budge because of who he is and what he has done for me. So today... May those of you who've been captive to this spiritual battle be awakened to the reality of your need from rescue 
that only comes from Christ who's come to set the captives free. And may you boldly trust in him, clinging to him and depending on him. And Christians, may we not be distracted from the real battle that's going on and put on the whole armor of God and call upon the power of God. And so I feel the only appropriate way to close out our time in the word this morning is by doing just that. And so I've asked three friends to come and join me or four friends to come and join me. So first will be the Jeffersons, who we have the privilege of praying over tonight as they respond to God's call to take the gospel to North Africa. They'll read from the word and then they'll pray. Then Aaron Fabian, uh, who's a chaplain for the army, uh, will pr- lead, uh, read a scripture and pray. And then John Stokes, one of our life group leaders, will close us. So if you guys would lead us in our time of prayer and you join with them. I'll be reading from Luke 10, 1 through 2. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us, for um, just the joy and the peace that you bring, that we get to celebrate um, all year and uh, this time of year. God, we pray that you would raise up labors for the harvest, God. We pray that you would help us not just to depend on others to do the work, on the paid staff to do the work, on on those people that we think um, just have it all figured out. But I pray that we would all see ourselves as laborers and that we would faithfully pray for other laborers uh, just to, to rise up, Lord, to go into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our places of work, Lord, that we would see ourselves in light of eternity and not just the here and now. I pray that you would give us Um, and just show us that purpose, that you would use us in the lives of those around us, and that it wouldn't just be about us and um, our conveniences and uh, our, our own good, but that it would be about your good. God, I also pray that you would raise up laborers among us to go to the nations. I pray that you would just continue to stir in the nations. We pray that you would pour out your mercy across this nation and other nations, that we would be able to see you come quickly, Lord. Amen. I'll be reading from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to worship you, we understand from this passage that your desire is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, in your perfect and complete wisdom, you've called the church to carry out this desire as an act of worship. Align our hearts and embolden us to do just that. Lord, make your desire pierce our hearts and minds 
allow this passion for the lost to permeate our innermost thoughts so that our prayers and supplications are directed towards the salvation of those that are lost. God, allow us to feel the weight and the gravity of the eternal trajectory of those who are lost and remind us that we too were once lost. Lord, remind us also of the joy of salvation and the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's our desire that the lost share in that joy and experience that fellowship with you. Put specific names on our hearts today who we can reach. Jesus, just as you are an intercessor for us, empower us through the Holy Spirit to intercede for the lost. Father, this passage makes it clear that your desire for all to be saved certainly includes those who are in high positions. We pray specifically for the president and for our government officials. First, for the salvation of those that are lost, and second, that their influence is used to further the gospel rather than hinder it. And lastly, Lord, as you're growing us internally and stoking a passion to see the lost be found, help us to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, to show that the life-giving message of salvation is not simply a platitude that we say with words, but rather a transformative and powerful way in which we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as uh, we consider James' words this morning and the prayers of our sister and brothers, I'm going to pray some some familiar verses um, with you from Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. And as I pray these, I would just ask you to consider this prayer not just for yourself, not just that we would be bold to stand in the face of whatever trials we might be facing, but that we would remember our sisters and brothers around the world who even right now face severe persecution for their faith, who are in prison for their faith, and are facing uh, the prospect of death for their faith. So might we continue to keep them in mind as we approach this time of celebration of our Savior's birth. So join with me as I pray according to Ephesians 1. I pray, O God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. I pray that you would help us grow in the knowledge of who you are and that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which you have called us, Father, that hope that does not disappoint. May we know the riches of your glorious inheritance, appreciate the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe in you, and may we know anew today that because of who you are for us, And since you are for us, nothing can stand against us. According to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Amen.